year and welcome back to part two of the best of binge reading 2022 and the seven top shows for the year as selected by you our listeners hi there i'm your host jenny wheeler we ran the first part of this year's best of in the first week of january so if you missed out on that do check it out The seven authors represented here, like those before them, range across the whole field of popular fiction. From romance maestro Jane and Krentz to Kate Quinn and her remarkable spy story set in, of all places, Ukraine during the Second World War. From Patty Callahan's inspirational revisiting of Narnia and the story of the love affair between C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman, to a surprise non-fiction book, our first ever but such a good story, Kate Langbrook's Chow Bella, her heartwarming account of taking her family of six to Italy for a year. As you'll know if you heard part one, the selection is based solely on the number of people who listened to the shows that ran between December 1, 2021 and December 1, 2022, Taking those dates allows us to compile and edit the show in time for posting in January 23. To give you the flavour, we include selected highlights from each show. We hope that you might discover new authors you've missed first time round or find books you might want to get into in 2023. Just as our listeners hail from all over the world, so do the authors represented here. So here it is part two of the Best of Binge Reading 2022. Hope you do enjoy it. And if you do, leave us a comment or review so others will find us too. Jane Ann Kretz is an internationally celebrated author who sold 35 million copies of her books worldwide. But when she started out, she spent six years battering on publishers' doors, trying to find her way in. I asked her about those years. And you were writing for yourself and really just for the joy of it for that whole six years. I wouldn't call it the joy of it. <laughs> I always say that if you're doomed to write, you don't have any option. It really is a kind of a, an addiction. It's a, it's a compulsion. And if you can quit writing, you will quit writing because there are enough frustrations in the business that you're not going to fight it. So the writers, every writer I know has just kept at it. That's how it works. And I think it's because we can't stop. And I say that, but there does come a time for some writers when they do stop. All of a sudden, I look back and there are names that have just gone. And I have no idea where they went. I guess they just walked away from it. I can't do that. Yes, that's interesting. So now you've created what you described at the end of one of your recent books, a Jane-verse, a universe, but it's a Jane-verse. Now, that's an interesting concept and something that almost seems to have stolen up on you. Can you explain to readers who don't know what a Jane-verse is? (laughs) Well, I have my editor to thank for pointing it out. We were talking about the next book. You know, what would the next book be like? What did I want to work with? And so many of my books, I want to work with the similar things. I love working with the psychic vibe. I love working with a certain kind of hero and a certain kind of heroine, certain kinds of plots. I don't do gory serial killer plots. I do more murder mystery type plots. And I like the romantic vibe in the books. And after a while, you create a world of that. Every writer has a verse, I think, a metaverse or whatever. And I think they spend their entire careers 
exploring that universe. And it's endless. It's as broad as your imagination. So in, in some sense, every author has their own personal universe, and that's what they write out of. That's what they write from, and that's what they explore. And I just hadn't thought of it that way until I had this conversation with my editor, and that she's the one that said, oh, a Jane verse. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. The other aspect of it is the romance, and you've been a vocal supporter of romantic fiction ever since you began, although your stories, probably the romance is more of a subplot element, isn't it? It isn't the whole focus of the story in a lot of cases. But you did contribute to an essay collection which seriously examined romance writing. And I wondered if you'd like to talk a little bit about how you might have seen the romantic fiction side of things develop over the time you've been writing. I think what I've come to feel over the past few years is that it wasn't just romance that didn't get any respect. It was popular fiction in general. Mm -hmm. it, it has always been the lesser, <laughs> the lesser literature, if you will. And whether it be science fiction or mysteries or Westerns or glitz novels or romance, the culture just doesn't give it a lot of dignity and respect as opposed to say literary fiction. But I think the thing to do and what I was trying to do with that book Dangerous Men and Adventurous Women, will step back and say, this is a category of writing that has been denigrated for decades, generations. I mean, back 300 years of criticism. And it's not just romance, it's popular fiction in general. The Gothic novels of the 1900s got the same hit. And I think that the important thing to ask is, why isn't it gone? <laughs> why did it survive? You know, it's kind of a Darwinian thing. It's because something that survives against all odds and against a lot of social pressure, you have to ask what's driving it. And I think the key is to look at what it does provide. And what it does provide is it transmits a culture's core values. We all know what a hero or a heroine is supposed to do when the chips are down. They are supposed to do the right thing. We know what a hero is supposed to do. And where do we get that? We get it from our popular fiction. And I think that's its contribution. That's what it does. And it transmits those core values and it reaffirms them to the reader. And I think that's the real secret of why popular fiction has survived. Yes, that's interesting. I had a bit of a feeling myself when I was younger that it was partly because men were the ones that were said to write more literary fiction. And a lot of the popular fiction was written by women. And the gatekeepers of the people who said what was great and what wasn't, a lot of them were men as well. But it's probably not, it is more complicated than that, isn't it? Well, certainly I think romance fiction was the, the farthest, <laughs> the stepchild. <you> know? <laughs> but I was in a group of writers one time a few years ago, and there were several successful writers in the group. We were all from popular fiction. There was a science fiction writer, a a mystery writer and me and a couple of others, you know, just various areas. And they all whined about the same thing, which was basically, I don't get any respect. We all had this, <laughs> we all had this. And that's what opened my eyes to the fact this isn't just romance, it's popular fiction that just isn't viewed the same as literary fiction. And I think the problem is you have to look at us having two different tasks. I think literary fiction is designed to illuminate the human condition, 
but it does not take its task as solving the problem. It just wants to make you see it. And so it tends to focus on things like despair and grief and depression. And because those are monumental, dramatic issues for humans, but it doesn't try to solve those problems. But in popular fiction, you're trying to solve them. You're trying to overcome them long enough to do the right thing. A publishing disaster led romance author Karen Swan into the schedule that's made her an international bestseller with two books a year, a summer one and then a wintry snowbound Christmas one that regularly both make the UK top popular fiction lists. Right at the last minute, her publisher asked her to totally revise a book she had just handed in on deadline because of possible conflicts with a book someone else had just published out there in the market. After a lot of tears and personal doubts, Karen says she sat down and did what she'd been asked to do, and it changed her writing life. So it was incredibly hard, but I set myself a really strict deadline of I had to write. I looked at the deadline they'd given me and I worked backwards and I worked out I could do it if I wrote 3,000 words a day, so 15,000 words a week, which is quite a lot. But I thought, if I do that, then I will make the deadline and my book will be on the shelves next Christmas. And so I did it. I sat down and it was a way of breaking past the panic and, and the chaos and the terror And just saying, right, all I've got to do is the next 3,000 words. All I've got to do is the next 3,000 words. Rather than calamity, oh my God, I have to write an entirely new book in six weeks. And actually what it made me realise was there was so much faffing around going on in my writing process before. You know, I'd wander around, I'd cuddle the dogs, I'd make a cup of tea, I'd go for a walk, I'd sit down, write a bit, get on the phone to a friend, thinking that the book would somehow just come. It doesn't. The book comes when you stare at the screen and you force yourself to focus and to put your head in that world. And there's sort of no shortcuts. And it really made me focus. And I actually ended up handing the book in a bit early. I was about a week ahead of my deadline in the end because momentum took over. And I handed it in. And honestly, it was a much better book than the original one. It's actually one of my favorite books now. And they said to me afterwards, well, (laughs) you've actually done really quite well there. Would you like to do two books a year going forward? And I thought, yeah, actually, because it's, Yes, it's double the stress, but it's also double the fun. You know, being a writer is spending 99% of the time on your own, in a room on your own with just the dogs for company. But you get to publication time and you get to do things like this. You get to talk to people. You get to do book tours. It's exciting seeing how the book will do. So why wouldn't you want to do that twice a year? So it was victory snatched from the jaws of defeat and disaster. (laughs) All of your books, whether they're summer or Christmas, they have evocative locations, but they have complicated love stories and often a twisting mystery underneath them that is a little bit dark, isn't it, usually? So that's obviously something that appeals to you, this slightly complicated and involved kind of plotting. They're part romance and part mystery, aren't they? Yes, that's how I think of them. It's funny when people describe me as a romance novelist, because for me, the romance is always, obviously, it's there, it's We have the story within the context 
of a romance, but actually because I write two books a year, there's only so many times I can fall in love. You know, I mean, (laughs) so for me, the interest and I suppose the intellectual stimulation for me is always the plot, the story. And I'm always fairly keen that my main character saves herself in whatever situation she's in. She's not a damsel in distress. She's not waiting for love to rescue her. We love our leading man, whoever he is in any book. But the focus for me is always my leading lady resolving her own issues and finding love along the way incidentally. And I think that for me keeps it really interesting because otherwise I think you'd fall into tropes of boy meets girl. And when you're writing as much as I am, and I do write quite long books, my books are quite big. So I I need to keep the interest level up. That has to be more than just their eyes met across a crowded room. Kate Langebroek's joyous, brave book, Ciao Bella, about taking her family of six to Italy for the year, offered a perfect start to 2021 because it's such an optimistic, can-do tale of overcoming challenge, including ending up homeschooling four family students in a Bologna lockdown. And it was a complete departure for binge reading because it was the first non-fiction book we've ever had on the podcast. The fact that it's made the best of the year shows listeners loved Kate's story. So before we even get into the book, because quite a few of our listeners won't be aware of your work in Australia, you're a a national Mm -hmm. star in your own land in Melbourne. But for those who aren't quite so familiar about your background and where you were actually placed when you started thinking about doing this adventure. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. So I've worked broadly in showbiz for over 20 years and a little bit of television, a little bit of writing, you know, columns for newspapers and panel shows or improv shows and comedically based stuff mainly. The main bulk of my work has been on the radio. So I did 12 years of radio, Melbourne Breakfast Radio on Nova here in Melbourne, and then had a year off, regrouped with my on-air partner, Husey, and then we went to do Drive, which is in the afternoon, four till six. And so I was doing that show, which is a national show, so it's right around Australia, It was a great show and I very much enjoyed it and was able to, when I went to Italy and decided I was going to Italy, of course, one of my first conversations with with Husey, who I've been on air with for 18 years, to say, I'm going to do this thing. He was my first person I had to talk to, you know. (laughs) Yeah. And he wasn't happy, Jenny. He was like, because he's also a workaholic. He's like, what? Why would you, what? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, I wanted to stop working, but his idea then was, and my bosses, was that I I do the show from Italy for the first six months we were there, which was unheard of in 2019. We didn't even have Zoom then, you know, so, and that's what I ended up doing. And it ended up being actually brilliant because it turned out that I was so focused on what I was trying to do with my family, four children and my husband, six of us, that I didn't really think about how it, the impact it would have on the broader world and people we knew and listeners to my show and people who had followed my career was that it would also be of interest to them 
It had not occurred to me. I hadn't had time to think about that really. And because when I decided to stop working, I was like, I'm happy to turn my back on that. I have to be prepared to walk away. I said to Husey, I'm not going to prison. I'm not asking you to wait for me. Yeah. And and yet it ended up being yet another avenue of communicating with our listeners and the adventure I got to share with them. And that was really the springboard for Chow Bella, Six Take Italy. The book was realising when I was telling Husey and our listeners what was happening with me every day, how interesting that was on a broader scale beyond me. Yes, that was interesting because as somebody who's been a journalist pretty well all my life, I was really impressed by the detail that you got. And I mean, some of those meals, it was wonderful, the meals you described, but you had to have been making notes in the restaurant at the time that you were eating the food, I thought. And and I wondered if you'd known you were going to be doing a book right from the beginning, because it came across as if you'd been very conscientious about taking notes. Well, my husband asked me about that the other day. I explained to him that it was actually the other way around, is that the stories that I wrote in my book, I wrote because I had such vivid recall of them, because oh. they were so significant. Now, you didn't choose an obvious draw card place to, to stay, none of the ones that first come to mind. You decided to go to Bologna. Now, tell us, that became a perfect fit for you as the book progresses, but tell us how you yes. settled on that. We had, we knew we wanted to be in the north of the country. Bear in mind, Jenny, we'd only been in Italy twice twice before and on holidays. And the first time we went was in 2015. Maybe it was 2014, but it wasn't a lifetime love affair with Italy. We didn't know the country really well. We didn't speak the language. We didn't know anybody. (laughs) We just loved what we'd seen on those holidays. And who doesn't love what they see on holidays? Mm. So, in 2018, we went to have a recce and we decided we knew we wanted to live in the north of the country. You know, down south is Sicily or Calabria or whatever. It's a bit more gnarly. So Mm. we wanted to be up north. We knew we needed an international school for the kids. Yeah. And so we would lead by that. So we did go to Florence, but too touristy. Mm -hmm. Not at the moment. Obviously, now's the perfect time to go to Florence, by the way. (laughs) But it was just too... I said to Peter, they're sick of us and we haven't even arrived, you know, because they just have this onslaught of visitors. So we crossed Florence off the list. Then we went to Verona, which a BuzzFeed quiz had told us was our perfect Italian city. And BuzzFeed was wrong because at the international school, they were so breathtakingly rude. Oh. Like astoundingly rude, very un-Italian to us. But this is a thing peculiar to Italy compared to Australia, that every town even though they're half an hour away from each other, has a really distinctive personality Mm. and food and characteristics. So quite feasible that Verona that was 40 minutes away, they just had a totally different mindset. That left us with Bologna and a girlfriend had told us about Bologna. She went there to learn how to make bolognese and to do a cooking class and we went there just Peter and I, we left the kids at the villa we were renting with Peter's mum and we drove in and within 40 minutes we went, this is it. Mm. Like a small city but bigger than a town but still operates like a village and so off the tourist trail. So hardly anyone spoke English, which should not have been the draw card it was for us given that we didn't speak Italian. <laughs> but 
it felt so, it was a ridiculous thing, but everyone who came to visit us would say, it's so Italian, which seems ludicrous because it's in Italy and it was Italian. But, you know, the beautiful terracotta building that, and Bologna's famous for its portici, which are the porticos, the arched walkways. So you could walk from one end of the city to the other without the heat or without rain. And they go all the way up the hill, 666 of them, which is a bizarre number, given they lead to the church at the top of the hill. (laughs) Anyway, it's a stunningly beautiful, elegant kind of peaceful city. And we we found an apartment right in the middle. So it's only got, I think, maybe 400,000 living inside Bologna in the old medieval part of it. And then on the outskirts, it's probably a million in total. Yeah. Look, for families who want to try and do something similar, you talk in the book about you feeling you needed a circuit breaker from the things that had happened. And a lot of families after this last couple of years of COVID, I'm sure, would feel like they needed a circuit breaker too. If they didn't have the money to go to Europe like that, what other ways? You get that question, what what could I do? Well, it's all right for you. You could afford to do that, but I'm stuck here, that kind yes. of thing. Yeah, what, what do you say to them? This has come up a lot with yeah. in conversation and you're so right. Now is, I think people have really, like we've been forged in the fire now and we've lost the impurities of our wants and desires. Mm. We have now can really see clearly how we want our lives to be or what's missing from our lives or ways in which we haven't served our own lives as well as we would have liked to. Yes. Or, or we just want to break, you know? Yes. And I would say it it doesn't have to be, like we'd worked towards Italy for two years, you know, yeah. as saving and like really focusing on that. And we live in the same house we've lived in for 16 years and I drive a 12-year-old car. Yeah. We're not house flippers or car people. We'd always wanted to travel. And because for so many years we couldn't when my son was sick, that was the manifestation for us of our just kind of dreams coming true. Susan Cannon Lewis is a USA Today best-selling author with multiple mystery series set in France and a dystopian futurist series set in Ireland. She has a passion for all things French and a fascination with the idea of a post-apocalyptic world. I asked her first about her cross-genre approach to her work, mixing mystery with futurist scenarios. You make this specialty really of being a little bit cross-genre. You mix up mystery with other elements. So tell us a bit more about that. Well, for example, I've got one series and now many of my series, three of my big series are set in France and they're set in France because I was a military brat, lived in France when I was a kid. So that was a strongly indelible experience for me. So I keep reverting back to France and French people and the French language. So for me, when I put a setting out for my mysteries, I chose France and I chose my protagonist to be an expatriate, an American, since that's what I know best, living in France in a fish out of water sort of approach, which is always something that attracts me is the idea of being a foreigner in a foreign land and how you deal with certain common everyday situations that are much more interesting when it's not your native culture. So this one series that I did, it's called Stranded in Provence. It crossed the genres because 
it's a cozy mystery is something that either has your protagonist or your amateur sleuth baking cupcakes and finding out who killed the village librarian. And there's no cussing and there's no sex, which I find extremely unfortunate, but I play by the rules because the readers don't like it. I do not know how some of the bigger authors get away with it, but my readers don't like cussing and they don't like sex, so fine. But anyway, the genres that I tend toward are not specifically cozy because they're just a little rougher. They're not that sweet. And in this particular case, because I tend to read a lot of dystopian and I'm just personally fascinated with the whole post-apocalyptic idea of what would you do if the world ended? Would you be one of the ones that could survive and adapt? So I basically took the whole fish out of water idea, the feeling of an expatriate, coming to France where she doesn't speak the language, she doesn't really know what the typical traditions and habits are of the village. And then she's going to do something that she would do in a murder mystery, solve a mystery. And she's going to do it with all those barriers really to jump over. And I feel like all of my books, every one of them, except for the one that happens in Atlanta. And I wrote that purely because I thought maybe it would sell. <laughs> and I did enjoy writing it, but my preference is always to put an American expat in a foreign country and throw all the things at her that is going to keep readers turning the pages. And I can trace back that inclination on my part to do that to the two years that I lived in New Zealand. I worked in an ad agency at the time it was called ILOTS Advertising and later it became bought out by Ted Bates and I was a copywriter there and the, in those two years we didn't have the internet, we didn't have email, so I did the whole immersion thing and even though yes we all spoke English, I cannot tell you what a shock to my system it was to be there. Everything was different. The clothes were different. Of course, the accent was different. And just the attitude of coming to a small country, which had a very strong feeling about itself, as opposed to America, which is a big country, which is very divided, and everybody's got an opinion, and it's mostly not the same opinion. It was a shock. And when I left, I just continued to write stories about a fish out of water, a, a foreigner who lands in a place and has to make her way. That's what fascinates me. So that's Look, it's what interesting because the series of yours that I've particularly enjoyed, I mean, they're all great, but the American in Paris one, where you have the central character, Claire, she's a little bit older. She's just turning 60 or nudging 60, and her life implodes at that point. She's suddenly widowed, and then she finds that the man she's married to had hidden secrets that she had no clue about. And they're on holiday in Paris when it happens. So for all of these reasons, she almost gets stuck in Paris because she doesn't feel like she wants to go home and face the mess that he's left behind there. So she is very much a fish out of water, and not only as an American, but as a single a woman who's suddenly solo after she's been married for years and living in quite a hostile environment because the investigation of a husband's death becomes quite unsympathetic towards her. So there's a lot of stuff going on there at the beginning. And you've turned that into a series. I think it's, you're now on book seven or eight. Eight's coming out soon, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Book eight 
is coming out soon. Yeah. I totally love that series. I love writing because when you've got a sleuth or a detective, and unlike a lot of the other detectives that you might see on television or read about, she's got certain barriers that she has to overcome. Like for one thing, physical barriers. I mean, she can't run as fast from the bad guy. Or if she's flung down in an alley, she is going to be bruised and aching and, and limping for the next two weeks. And I think that these are all things that first make her more real, but also just show the things that she's got to overcome in order to do the same things that a younger detective might. But you know, the other thing that I love about this is something that is, I think, probably unique to France. And that is that at her age, she's still considered attractive. Yeah. Whether that's a myth or whether that's the real deal, that's the way I write it. In America... Uh, in her age at 60, there is no way that she's going to get a second look from anyone, uh, a male. There is no way. But in France, that's still possible. And so that allows me to give another, another tint or shade to her life there, the romantic thing, which is believable, less so in, in, in the US, I think. Now, Claire also has got a condition, which I've never heard of before. Tell us about that, which also makes it extra difficult for her. Right. She's got face blindness, which, interestingly, I also have it. I don't know why I decided to write about it, but uh, maybe because it is interesting. Actually, Jane Goodall, I was reading a preface to one of her books, and this was maybe 15 years ago. And she said in the preface, she said, I'm an introvert. It's really hard for me to meet people, but it's made particularly difficult by the fact that I've got something, which is actually a brain defect called prosopagnosia. And when she started to explain how it was that she could see someone's face and then turn away and not recognize them again, I realized this is what I have. And I thought everybody was like that. I thought every time you would watch a movie and somebody would come on like a man or whatever, like perhaps they were trying to, you know, say he was the antagonist and then he would leave. I was constantly asking my, asking my husband, so have we seen him before? He was going, yeah, he just came there. I said, okay, great, got it. So unless they're wearing a big bow tie or, you know, some, something outlandish to indicate who they are, It's very difficult for people with face blindness and there's varying degrees. Some people don't recognize their own faces in the mirror. It's a brain defect. The ability to remember or to to recognize a face, they say, is absolutely one of our most basic skills or habits and we're born with it. Mine was genetic. Most people who have it, it's been a hit on the head or something traumatic physically happens to damage that part of the brain. But I did think it was good giving this disability to a detective because first I wanted to see if it could be done, if you could actually do this job while not being able to remember faces. And I thought it just gave a little bit of extra interest to her to have her struggle with that. Susan May Warren is a Rita and Christie Award-winning inspirational suspense author with over 100 contemporary and historical romances published in more than 20 languages. She got started with her writing in an isolated Russian winter and I asked her to tell us about those tender beginnings. Tell us how all of this got started. Oh, that's a good question. I, I, of course, standing here today, I would have never 
ever dreamed that I would be here from where I started. And so I started, well, you know, as a writer, everybody has this bug to write. And so I was always a writer. I wrote my first novel when I was 14 years old, but I never really thought I would be a novelist. I was actually called into missions. And so I was a missionary for about 10 years with my husband and our four kids. And we lived overseas. We lived in Far East Russia, which is otherwise known as Siberia. And it was a very challenging time, but a good time. But during that time, I really felt like I was supposed to be writing. I started by writing newsletters and communicating with our supporters back home and this sort of thing. But then eventually stories started to enter into my mind and my heart. And I started to look into writing novels. Now, I was a graduate of English at the University of Minnesota. So it was wasn't like that was a far leap for me, but I did need to learn how to write a novel. And so I started writing novels. And of course, I started with the historical tome of Russia. I think it spanned like it started in 1938 and went to 1985 or something like that. It was like this huge book, but it was fun. And I finished it. And when I finished it, it was like the world opened up to me and I said, wow, I can do this. And so then I thought, let's try it again. I actually wrote four novels completely before I was ever published. And I wrote them all while I lived in Russia. And I wrote different kinds. So one was a historical, one was a historical suspense, one was a contemporary romance, and one was a contemporary suspense. And so, you know, just trying to get my feel for what I liked, well, that kind of backfired on me, or I suppose it didn't necessarily backfire. But what happened was when I finally sold my first novel, that was to Tyndale, they came to me and they said, what else do you have? So I gave them a contemporary romance series. And then I went home and I went to a writing conference and I had some publishers come up to me and they said, well, what else do you have? So I Then I sold the contemporary romantic suspense and then I sold the historical suspense. And so suddenly I had all these different kinds of books out there, like these different genres that I was writing in. And I even wrote a, at the time it was called Chiclet, but now it'd be called Rom-Com series about a girl in Russia. So suddenly I had four or five different genres out there. And so it was like casting many hooks into the water to see which one hit, I suppose. And we had success with all of them. Some were more successful than others. And I ended up following that route. So it was a good way to see what voice was the best. I have to say that I probably enjoy writing historicals the most because I love research, but I find that my epic romantic adventure are the books that my readers most love. So that's the ones I'm invested in writing right now. So yes, but that's how I got started. The contemporary romance, the romantic suspense and the adventure, they are all quite similar, aren't they? I mean, in the sense that you choose similar settings, they're raw, wild settings, small town or rural communities, and the family and community relationships are extremely important as well. Have you done anything at all in a big urban metropolitan centre? Well, yes, I have. I've written in Russia. I wrote a number of books set in in a city, Far East Russia. So I had a couple of thrillers set there. And then most recently, I wrote a book with my son and James Rubart, and that was set all in Minnesota in Minneapolis area. But I do like the rural settings. I like the small towns. You get to know people, you invest in the people. And I think our nation is really made up of small towns. I mean, we do have big cities, of course, but a lot of people long for the nostalgia of small towns. And so that becomes a really great place to set a book or a series because you get to know all the people in that town. And I really love to, you know, build those little towns where people can escape to, really. Bring it back to you and your personal writing career. What would you say is an ideal working day for you? What what plan do you work to? So I have what I call writing blocks. So I have writing block times. And so my week is separated into five days of 
three to four blocks of my day. And so my early morning block, which is my prep time, and I have what I call Miracle Morning, if you know anything about Hal Elrod. So I have Miracle Morning, and then I have my first block, and maybe a writing block, or it could be a marketing block. And then I have two more blocks in my day. Generally speaking, Mondays are my business days, and I'm working on doing stuff for my companies. And then Tuesday and Wednesday are completely writing days, and I shut off my email, my phone. And so after my my Miracle Morning, it's all writing. So I usually write about 5,000, 6,000 words on those days. And then Thursday morning, I usually write. And then Thursday afternoon, I prep for a class that evening that I always teach on Thursday nights. And then Friday, I call it my free day. And my free day can be anything. It could be marketing. It could be writing. It could be taking a walk with a friend. It's just my free day. So my goal is about 15,000 words a week. Sometimes I get to 20. Sometimes I don't have a lot going on with my businesses. So I can just write on a Monday afternoon, I get to 25. So it just really depends. But my low production or my standard production is 15,000 a week. And so how many books a year do you aim to get through? I usually write one big one, at least. So 100,000 words. And then I might write four or five smaller ones, around 50 to 70,000 words. And I balance that between trad and indies. I'm a hybrid. So I leave my nice big books that I consider like you sink into and you just devour like the big ones for my trad publishers. Those are the trad books. And then I leave the smaller books, which are fun and quick and something you can read on a Saturday afternoon. I leave those for the indie ones. It works out because I'll write a big, nice, thick book about a family and their adventures and this sort of thing. And then maybe I'll write the smaller books will be about the people they've met in the area or maybe another little family or maybe some events that happen, something like that, but all of them mesh together to for one solid package. And I call it the Susie verse. I have all of my characters now throughout all my series are connected in some way. So that's really fun. So if you're reading a book, a character might walk on from another series and Susie Me Warren fans will go, oh, I, see, I recognize them. I know who they are. And it's kind of fun to catch up a little bit and see what's happening with these other characters. So that's a treat that I like to give my readers is to see and connect with old characters and catch up with them a little bit. And give them a little surprise. Right, exactly. Kate Quinn is an international best-selling author of World War II historical fiction like The Alice Network and The Rose Code. Now she's back with her latest, The Diamond Eye, based on the true story of a mother who became a reluctant soldier and then the deadliest female sniper in World War II, a place where she changed history. I started by asking her about this remarkable woman. Very few people had heard of Mila. So how did you come across the story? Well, it's the classic case of when you were researching one book, your research drops the idea for a new book in your lap unasked for, which is a wonderful thing. And this came about when I was researching one of my last books just before The Rose Code called The Huntress, which was centering around the Russian female bomber pilots who flew against Hitler's Eastern Front. And when I was researching the Night Witches, I happened to run across all kinds of other stories about other Soviet women war heroines because the Soviet Union was the only allied nation to involve women officially in combat, which none of the others did. So I happened to run across all kinds of women who had incredible stories. And most incredible of all was Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who 
went from a very ordinary woman indeed to being a war heroine and a star of the front line and even to being a what we would now think of as a media sensation in the United States thanks to a Goodwill tour in 1942. So as soon as I read about this woman, I knew I had to write about her. It just took another book or two before I was able to realize that this was the time for her story. She was not your stereotype of the psychopathic killer by any stretch of the imagination, was she? She wasn't. And that was the thing I loved about her because the more I researched her, the more she became very human and very warm. We have this idea that snipers have to be these cold-blooded killers. At worst, they're militarized serial killers. And at best, they're the odd man out on a team of ordinary guys, the one who gives everybody else the shivers. But, you know, she was quite human. And I loved finding that out about her. She was a single mother. She was a graduate student. She wanted to be a historian. She was working on her dissertation at the time when her country was invaded and she left school to enlist. She was working as a library researcher at the Odessa Public Library at the time. And I just found that delightfully, wonderfully nerdy, that she was a woman who we could absolutely imagine having in our book club, a woman we could imagine working with or checking your book out from at the library. And yet she had this extraordinary willpower and this extraordinary skill in her, which when it was tossed into this incredible crucible of war, really turned into a very, very fine steel indeed. You capture the surroundings of those months when she was at the front. Amazingly, the, what the climatic conditions were like, the, the incredible cold. And also there's a very touching aspect where she's desperately trying to keep in touch with her son and she sends him leaves because he's doing some botanical project for school. You make it very real. Did you have journals or something that you could use or did you go to the Ukraine yourself? How did you do that research? I would have loved to go to the Ukraine and to go to Odessa and Sevastopol, but uh, unfortunately this was written at the end of 2020 in the beginning of 2021, uh-huh. long before I was vaccinated or the vaccines were available and there just was no travel happening whatsoever. So I had to make do with Google Earth and Google Maps and all kinds of research as far as historic photographs vintage photos. And fortunately, the most useful thing at all was the fact that Lyudmila Pavlichenko wrote her memoirs later in life. And she really is very descriptive of her time at the front what it was like from the smallest details of what kinds of plants there were around her, which is what gave me the idea that I think she learned that particularly because she said that she was a city girl. She was not a country girl who knew all of her plant names, but she really knew all the names of the trees and the things. And it made me wonder if, I wonder if she was learning that for a particular purpose, because I do know that she missed her son dreadfully. He was only about eight years old and she missed him horribly while she was at the front and knew that there was at least a good chance she would be killed without ever seeing him again. So her letters to home really became something that was a lifeline for her as she is involved in this horribly tense and bloody work. Yeah, yeah. What was the hardest thing for you in writing this story overall? Was it getting into Ludmilla's head? Was it getting a grasp on the wide frame of history? What was the hardest thing? The thing that was the most difficult and the thing that concerned me the most was that I wanted my modern day readers to not be put off by the fact that I'm asking them to sympathize with a Soviet woman 
who literally has killed more than 300 people. <laughs> I was worried that was going to be a little bit of a stretch for a reader's sympathy because nowadays in, in the U.S., you know, let's just say that our relationship with Russia is not particularly warm and it's a little bit harder to drum up sympathy for that and to drum up sympathy for someone who is very much a believer in the Soviet system because now we know with the hindsight of history how very misguided that system could be and how many people suffered under it and how many died under Stalin. So it's a very different world I'm asking them to step into. And then there's the fact that she did, in fact, kill so very many people, even though she was a soldier and it was her job and she was certainly not a murderer. But to do that, I ended up really trying to dig into what are the things that are universal about being human and about being female. And those were the things that I thought would help a reader, any reader, really sympathize and empathize with what Mila's experience was. Because there are certain experiences that are universal. She talks about what it's like to have your period on the front line and the fact that the army has no idea what to do with that and really would rather not know. Or the fact that she is continually being boxed in by sexist superior officers who are either hitting on her or punishing her because she's rejecting them when they hit on her or who are just continually questioning her expertise. Or there's the fact that she's dealing with an ex-husband who's basically just trying to make her life as difficult as possible, but she has to be nice to him and swallow all this anger just so that she can get things done in her ordinary life. And the fact that she has this perfectionism in the way she approaches her world that she feels she can't ever make mistakes and I think that's the kind of thing that most women can empathize with. We have the feeling that we cannot make mistakes or we're just going to tumble off the track and we're not going to be able to get back on it. So these were the things I really leaned into in my efforts to make sure that Mila was a heroine that the reader could like and that the reader could feel, all right, she's very different from me, but I understand how she feels here. Patty Callahan was our guest for our 200th episode late last year. She's devoted the last seven years of her life to researching the relationship between theologian and children's author C.S. Lewis and his American wife, Joy Davidman, producing two best-selling books. The first, Becoming Mrs. Lewis, tells the story of the precious years of love and marriage the two authors shared before Joy's early death. The second, Once Upon a Wardrobe, delves into the inspiration behind the magical Narnia children's series. But before we got to Narnia, we talked about the provocative love between two brilliant people. She was a polarizing character, wasn't she? Even today, some people are inspired by her and others are quite uh, disapproving of her. Can you tell us a little bit about that polarization? Absolutely. And I agree. I think that is part of what interested me in her was that I kept hearing either one, the two views of her were still polarized. There were those who were fascinated that she was the only woman Lewis ever loved, that she was a woman who swooped into his life and completely changed the last decade of his work. And then there were others who believed that she was not fit for him and were polarized and disapproving of her. And I'd had a hard time reconciling these two different stories of this one woman. And so what I did was that I dove into that story, those polarized views in a different way, her point of view. It was in her poetry, her letters, her essays, her fiction, her nonfiction, 
I looked at it from what she had to say about it. And yes, she is fiery and she is complicated and she made decisions you and I probably wouldn't make. And yet she was the woman who wrote C.S. Lewis a letter and changed the last decade of his life. It is his words to her were the happiest years of his life. So who are we to judge or become polarized about what we believe about her when that is what he has to say about her? He says that she was iron on iron for him, that she was the smartest person he'd ever met and that he loved her. When he wrote the book, A Grief Observed, about the great grief he had when she passed away. As we well know, he did not admit he was in love, nor did he tell her he was in love until he knew she was dying. And he tried to get special permission from the church to marry her. And yet it wasn't until she was on her deathbed that he was able to do so. And his friends were opposed. For example, J.R.R. Tolkien, he was very opposed as a, a devout Catholic that Lewis would be in love with dating or marry a divorced woman with two children. So not only has that carried over into today, but people believe that she showed up from America and swooped into his life. And yet, can't we give Lewis some autonomy and believe that he knew what was best for him? Your most recent book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, is, I think, a remarkable story. Honestly, it had me crying and feeling joyful at the same time, which is a fantastic thing for a writer to do. You tell the story of how Narnia came to be through the eyes of a very ill little boy. And I wonder, for starters, how did that particular framework come to you? When I was writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I saw these breadcrumbs in C.S. Lewis's life that I could see in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And Not being a Narnia Chronicles expert, but being a lover of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book I have read so many times. I have read to my children, watched the movie, and I had never heard anyone talk about these little breadcrumbs of his life in such a beloved story. And I sat with it for a long while, and I wrote a book in between. I had a historical novel out last year. And yet when COVID happened and shutdown happened, I started to toy with the idea that I wanted to show these pieces of his life that I saw in the origins of that story. And I'm always fascinated with the origins of stories. I love mythology. I love origin stories of the world from different mythological perspectives. And I wondered about the origins of Narnia. And I started to write a story about it and a little boy named George appeared and he was fascinated with the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. He wished for the back of his wardrobe to pop out so he could find it. And he asks his sister to ask the author at Oxford in the year of 1950 where this story came from. And I couldn't for a long time Figure out how to do that without lecturing you, which goes back to your question of how I decided to tell it the way I told it. And finally, I decided after much messing around 
that what I would do is have Lewis tell the story to Megs and Megs would tell the story to George. And then we as the reader and me as the writer would see that story through the innocence and liminal space of an eight-year-old's imagination. So that I'm not telling you, and Lewis isn't telling you what happened to him. We are watching it through an eight-year-old's imaginative eyes. Patty reminds us that Joy Davidman turned up at C.S. Lewis's house with her two sons, Douglas and Davy Gresham, and that in the end, Lewis became a key figure in the boys' lives. Douglas gave Patty extended interviews about his life with C.S. Lewis, which contributed to her research. Douglas tells a story of showing up at Mr. Lewis's house to meet him for the first time with his mother. He was only eight years old which is the age that I have my young boy in my story. And Douglas shows up and he expects a knight to answer a door. He expects a great man who might live in Narnia. For how could anything but a great knight or king have created this entire world called Narnia that Douglas says saved him and his imagination when he was a young child living in New York during a very bad time when his father, who was an alcoholic, and his mother were getting divorced. And he opened the door and there stood a man in ratty tweed pants and pushed down slippers and a cigarette and a human. And he tells the story of meeting him and being disappointed. And then within a half an hour, falling in love with this jovial, funny, smart man who created Narnia. And when Douglas told me that story, it very much impacted how I wanted George, my eight-year-old character, to see the author of this story and to see how the very ordinary world of this man could be turned into something extraordinary through the alchemy and the magic of story. That's it. Best of Binge Reading 2022. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be back in early February with the first of 2023's new interviews. This year, I'm only going to be doing them fortnightly rather than weekly, but I hope you'll be with us for the year and enjoy the show. Meantime, that's it for now and happy reading. Happy reading.